0: In case you haven't noticed over the last 20 years or so, we have now moved into a period in American history when everyone, maybe just accepting you, but everyone else is easily offended. Let me ask you to take a real quick personality inventory with me and to determine if you're easily offended. Here's a rapid test. Do you explode in anger, in fits of anger over little things? Do others say to you, you're making a mountain out of a molehill? Do you frequently take things the wrong way? Do others feel they have to walk on eggshells around you? Do others consider you high maintenance? Do you regularly tell other people they have offended you? Are you often demanding apologies from other people? In our text tonight, we're going to see examples of people who took offense when they shouldn't have. And we'll learn that people who take things personally think too much about their own person. And tonight, you're going to need your Bible. We're going to be looking at 2 Kings 5, continuing in our study there. We began last Sunday night taking a brief hiatus, and we will be looking at 2 Kings 5 for the month of December And I would remind you that the chronological setting of our text is around 820 BC, 150 years or so after the death of David. And now the nation of Israel is divided between the Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom. And it's steeped in idol worship. And as we look at this narrative, this, this delightful narrative that has so many lessons for God's people, there are four distinct characters, Elisha the prophet, Naaman, the, the commander-in-chief of the Syrian army, Gehazi, and an unnamed girl. So let me just remind you a little bit that we learned about these characters last week. The, the character development by the author and by the Holy Spirit is astounding. For the economy of words that we have, we learn so much about them. Elisha has recently, when we opened 2 Kings 5, has recently burst onto the scene as the national prophet the successor to Elijah. Of course, in the Old Testament, in this period in Israel's history, the Lord provided an ongoing succession of prophets for the people of God. These were the successors of Moses. Almost every king during the history of the two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdoms, had a prophet as his conscience. The prophet would call on the rulers of Israel to rule in obedience to the law of God. But they also were more than just the conscience of the king. They were a national preacher, and they also had spectacular gifts of of healing and miracles. And that certainly is the case with Elisha, who, when you add it up, does twice as many mighty miracles as Elijah. And then there's the character of Naaman. Look at verse one. We're introduced to him there in 2 Kings 5. We're told a few things about him, that he's the commander of the armies of Syria an enemy of Israel. He's a five-star general. He's a great and honorable man in the eyes of the king of Syria. And we are told that his military success there in verse one was directly attributable to God's providence, even though he was a pagan idolater, teaching us that God's providence isn't just over the church. It extends to all people, all things everywhere. And a quick note about him. He was a man of valor. He was brave. But sadly, The dominant factor in Naaman's life was he was a leper, with all that that meant medically and socially. And then we met this unnamed young girl, an Israelite, somewhere between 10 and 14 years old. Syrian raiding parties had swept across the the borderline into Israel they would do this regularly when they needed slave labor, and she'd been kidnapped by one of these Syrian raiding parties and then enslaved in Syria in the home of Naaman the leper, the general. And this little girl, this young girl who's working as a house servant, instead of complaining, wishing away her, her life, she has pity, Christian sympathy, for her master, Naaman the leper. And she states her desire to connect him to Elisha, the prophet, back in Israel. She is sure Elisha can heal him. So let me ask you now to roll up your sleeves, prepare to dig in deep to our text, and perhaps to hear a couple of things that maybe you don't want to hear. Let's seek the help of the Lord now at this time. O living God, help us now to so hear your holy word that we may truly understand that understanding we may believe, believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your glory in all that we do, we pray in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I would ask you to look at verses 4 through 6, and I want you to notice how Naaman procures the blessing, the authority and the riches of the king of Syria. You remember, Naaman is a, a Syrian general, the He's the commander-in-chief of the armies of an enemy nation, Syria. And Naaman the leper hears through his wife from their servant girl that there's hope in Israel. There is someone there who can heal him of his leprosy. And so he goes to the king. Look at verse 4. When he goes to the king, he went in and told his master, that is the king, thus and thus said the girl who's from the land of Israel. Now, obviously, a step of communication is omitted. There's a a fascinating sidetrack that I won't run down. But what we see in the early parts of 2 Kings 5 is a miscommunication. Mrs. Naaman, the wife of the leper general, in verse 3, she knows this because the young Israelite slave girl told her so, that it's the prophet Elisha who can heal. But when she passes on this information to her husband, now men, none of you would ever fall for this. None of you would ever would ever have a wife who would say to you, You never listen to me. You don't pay attention to what I'm saying. I know that's never happened to me. Well, notice some miscommunication must have happened. Because when Naaman passes on this information that there's a man in Israel who can heal him, the prophet Elisha the king of Syria drops something because notice who the king of Syria writes specifically to in verse 5. He writes not to the prophet Elisha, but to the king of Israel asking him to heal Naaman of leprosy. Well, in the meantime, Naaman prepares to go to Israel. He's going to go with this letter from his king in hand to be healed by Elisha. Now, look carefully what his mission is, his errand is. He's preparing to go not on a raid to kidnap young girls, as he's done before, not on a military attack by Syria against Israel, but he's going to go and look at what his intent is in verse 5. His intent is to go and try to purchase a healing. Why else would he take this massive amount of resources, silver and gold and expensive clothing, Just the gold, when you add up what the gold is worth in today's market, would be worth hundreds of thousands, no doubt millions of dollars. And he is like so many others, even today, perhaps people in this room, who think that the gift of God can be purchased. Not knowing the free offer of gracious blessing apart from any exchange of funds is always God's way of blessing. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said with arms open wide in Isaiah 55? Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the motto of God's grace. His dealings with men are always free. That's the point of grace. Amen doesn't understand that. At this point, he's a lost Syrian. And so he thinks transactionally. If I'm going to get some blessing from this Elisha or Elisha's God, I've got to pay for it. Now, Naaman's willingness, I find amazing, to go to Israel on the word of a foreign teenage girl shows his desperation. But this leprosy is eating him alive. You know, of course, what leprosy does. It eats away at the extremities so that now you have stubs left for fingers. It eats away at your appendages on your face so that your nose, your ears are rotted off. And we're shown here how God is pleased to use little and despised things and people. Notice who everything spins on here. Who is the messenger of good news and of hope? It's a teenage girl in captivity. Who would expect her to do great things for the Lord? Who would even be inclined to listen to her voice? She has several strikes against her. Her age, she's somewhere between 10 and 14. Her nationality, she's an Israelite in Syria. She probably has trouble even speaking the language. Her position, she's a slave. All these are strikes against her. But she uses her opportunity in the moments that she has, and she bears witness to her owner, Naaman's wife. Her simple message reached the ears not only of Naaman but of the king of Syria. Now here comes the comedic part. And here comes the first offense in our text. But there are others. Look at verse 7. This letter written by the king of Syria goes to the wrong recipient. It's not addressed to Elisha the prophet. It certainly would have got to him if it just had that address on it. But it goes to the king of Israel. The king of Israel is incredibly upset. He's offended. He's bothered when he gets this communication from his fellow king, the king of Syria. Now, since Elisha's prophet, as his tenure as prophet, was long, he would have overlapped with several kings of Israel Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoahaz, and Joash. We don't know which of those kings of Israel is specified in the text. But look what the king of Israel does when he gets this letter from his fellow king, the king of of Syria. He rips his clothes, which is the response of an Israelite to blasphemy. He rightly thinks, why is this king of Syria asking me to heal somebody? I'm not God. I have no powers of healing. And his mind immediately goes to the worst possible outcome. Look carefully at verse 7. And this is both a paranoid man and an easily offended man. Here's what he begins to think. He thinks, the king of Syria is seeking all-out war against us. And this is some sort of provocation. I don't know how it is, but it's got to be. And so he's thinking this because Syria has already sent raiding parties and kidnapped and enslaved some of his citizens. And he realizes who's coming and delivering this letter. It's Naaman, the general, the chief commander of the forces of Syria. And so the king of Israel is so bothered that he begins to tear his clothes. And he completely misinterprets the communication in verse 7. And look what he does. He attributes the absolute worst motives to the king of Syria. Instead of thinking the following. Now let me give you a quick lesson on how not to be offended. Here's what he should have done. He should have said, you know, this letter was just routed to the wrong person, but this could be an opportunity, a platform for peace and goodwill with my Syrian neighbors and an opportunity for God to show mercy to pagans and reveal his glory. But he doesn't do that. He takes offense at a letter when no offense was intended. He's only our first person offended in the text. So look at what happens. Naaman is summoned to Elisha's house. Look at verse 8 and 9. The one man, by the way, Elisha, who has the power to cure, has been ignored by everyone so far. Naaman comes into the land of Israel expecting relief from a prophet of the God of Israel, and Elisha would by no means allow him to go back home disappointed, lest he should conclude that Jehovah was like the gods of the nations and unable to do any good. And so Elisha not only rebuked the king of Israel, look at verse 8. This is the man of God, the prophet of God. And this is a rebuke to his king, the king of Israel in verse 8. Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him, that is Naaman, come to me, and he shall know there is a prophet in Israel. So Elisha not only rebukes the king of Israel for his unbelieving fears, but he tells him what to do, gives him instructions concerning Naaman. However unwelcome might be Elisha's interference, it didn't deter him at all. The real servant of God, of course, never seeks to please men, but rather to fulfill the calling is received from the Lord. So Naaman the general, finally, after all this mix-up, makes his way to the town of Samaria now is when the action begins look at verse 9 carefully by the way the town of Samaria is not hard to find since his slave girl had told his wife that the prophet lived in Samaria a small village in the region of Samaria and so Naaman in his chariot with his armed and mounted entourage enters the village Now, this village was tiny in these days, In around 800 B.C., it was tiny. I just found out that uh, part of our family homestead in Faxon, Oklahoma, that Faxon, Oklahoma, in by the time the 2020 census was done, the census was 138 people in Faxon, Oklahoma. Samaria was kind of like that. And so if you rode in, in a chariot, in an entourage of, of warriors with swords and bows and arrows, and you asked, where does the prophet live? Nobody would have said, never heard of him. Everybody would have said, over there. And so Naaman and his entourage, we find out in verse 9, ride to Elisha's front door. Now, no matter how impressive Naaman seems with all these trappings, all of these soldiers and chariots and horses and armaments, no matter how impressive he seems, he's still a leper. What a picture, because leprosy is almost always in Scripture a picture of the ravages of sin. But isn't it it counterintuitive? Here's this lost man, ravaged by disease, Who is self important? It's a picture of the natural man, totally depraved, alienated from God, at enmity with him, reeking of death until God renews and cleanses. And the abscess of our pride is lanced. We're swollen with self righteousness, refusing to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. And Naaman is sitting right outside the door of the prophet with all his silver and gold and elegant clothing. He's a picture of how lost men think. He's absolutely sure that what he has in his chariot can buy spiritual blessings. The lost man, even up till the very end, is is convinced he can earn God's favor, whether through his good deeds or his fasting or his, his giving. This is why the lost man is always shocked to hear. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not by works lest any man should boast. Naaman had to learn that neither him, the self-important general, nor the poorest beggar was the least bit impressive to a holy God. Well, Naaman hears the directives from Elisha, but not in the way he wants to. Look carefully at verses 10 through 12. What's a little comical, of course, is that nobody this important ever had been to the little village of Samaria before, and so so Naaman, as he rides up, he's thinking, Elisha's heard that I'm coming, and so he'll be on the front porch ready to welcome me, and he'll roll out the good china and the nicest chair for for me, the commander of the Syrian armies, because of his office, the five-star general, and his huge gifts that are listed for us there in verse 5, and his diplomatic letter from the king, Naaman expects Immediate personal attention to his case. Elisha doesn't even come out of the door. Look at verse 10. Elisha sends out a messenger to him. God is no respecter of persons and neither are his ministers. I have to stop and tell you about the time 20 years ago walking down this aisle When a member came rushing up to me and said, Carl, this very prominent surgeon is visiting today. You need to go speak to them right now. And I said, I'm talking to these people right now. I'll, I'll go talk to them later. I looked up a couple of minutes later and I could see their backsides leaving. And this person never forgave me for it. Carl, you blew it. Finally, some beautiful, important people walked in the door, and you didn't go speak to them. God is no respecter of persons, and neither are his ministers. Incalculable harm has been done in churches by ministers pandering to the wealthy and the important. God will not tolerate any parading of human distinctions before him. And this completely misses who God chooses. Be reminded of this from 1 Corinthians 1. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God has chosen the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen them and the things which are not to bring the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Elisha doesn't even come outside. Look carefully at verse 10. Elisha sends his servant out with instructions. You see, Elisha knows that the important thing is not the messenger, but it's the message. This is why Paul rebuked the Corinthian church. They were only willing to hear from their personal messenger, Paul, Apollos, or their favorite preacher. And so Paul told them, who is Paul? Who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed? In other words, Paul is trying to teach. The point is never the messenger, it's the message. And Elisha is trying to teach this to Naaman. Naaman, it doesn't matter if I come outside. What matters is the message. Well, listen to these instructions from Elisha. Through his servant to Naaman, who's standing on the front porch. Here they are. Look very carefully. And see if you would take offense. The servant comes out and says, "Uh, General Naaman, the prophet says you're to go to the Jordan River. That's a distance of about 28 miles east of where they are. It's out in the wilderness. And General Naaman, next, when you get there, wash seven times. By the way, Naaman, you'll have to get out of your gleaming chariot. And did I tell you, Naaman, don't just wash once, but seven times a picture of self-renunciation. And at that moment, Elisha's servant said, goodbye, turned on his heels and walked back in the house. Naaman is shocked. First of all, he's shocked because there's no ritual and he says as much. Look at verse 11. He's shocked because he wants a ritual befitting a man of his status. He wants the spectacular. He wants the bells and whistles. He wants an impressive show. He wants choreographed theater. Look what he says he wants Elisha to do. Look at verse 11 carefully. He wants Elisha to come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. This is something like the court magicians and the priests of Remen, his, by the way, that's his idol god back in Syria. That's what the idolatrous priest back in Syria would do. And what Naaman seems to miss is the good news. He apparently didn't notice what the servant said. Look at verse 10. The servant promises him, if you do this, if you obey the word of the prophet, your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. Naaman at that point, once he hears the promise of cleansing, should be leaping up and down. And this is analogous to people I've heard before say, are you telling me That I have to repent? Yes. Are you telling me that I can only trust in Jesus? Yes, but what I'm telling you, if you repent and believe, you'll receive eternal life. But I don't like to repent. It's so humiliating. And why why should I only believe in this exclusive Savior? You see, the gospel, the good news of the gospel is tucked away right there in verse 10. Do you see it? The promise is made you will be cleansed. And now Naaman is the second person in our text to take offense. Look what we're told in verse 11 and 12. Naaman became furious. He's in a rage, or we see it again in verse 12, that he turns away in a rage. Back in Syria, nobody treats me this way. People stand up when I come into the room and salute. I am offended. I'm offended that Elisha didn't come out to meet with me and have personal dealings with me. I'm offended that Elisha didn't meet my my expectations of a healing ritual. I'm offended that Elisha tells me to go another 28 miles to wash in a small, dirty little river like the Jordan. Why, Syria has cleaner rivers with extensive canal systems. Listen, Elisha, we've got irrigation ditches bigger and cleaner than this drainage ditch you call the Jordan River. And nationalism even plays into it. Look at verse twelve, where Naaman he he takes offense as a Syrian nationalist. He's slighted, and so he's saying to Elisha, "I'm taking offense on behalf of all of my countrymen. All Syrians know that our rivers are cleaner and bigger than your river." Sounds like talking to somebody from Texas, doesn't it? Well, Naaman's pride has been offended. His pride of office. I'm a five-star general. I've been victorious in great battles. His pride of place. I'm a Syrian. Our rivers are great and so are our armies. His pride of wealth. Elisha, do you not see how much money I've got sitting right here in my chariot? All the gold and silver and clothing? He wants to be healed. He wants to be cleansed. But it needs to be on his term. It needs to be in a way that honors him. Because Naaman wants his dignity. And his importance acknowledged. He storms away angry. Look at the last words in verse 12. He turned and went away in a rage. A moment ago when I administered our little self-help questionnaire and said, Naaman, are you the sort who is easily offended? Yes. Do you take offense? Do you make a mountain out of a molehill? Yes. Notice who doesn't follow after Naaman, Elisha doesn't chase after him. He simply leaves it to a sovereign God to work it out. Now I have to stop once again and point out that leprosy in the scriptures is a picture of the affliction of every sinner. Leprosy is a picture of sin. It's progressive, it's incurable, it's deadly. And the only way to be healed is the old rugged cross. That's why Paul speaks in Galatians 5 of the offense of the cross. Sinners want lots of ritual, but a religion that leaves out the repulsive, ugly nature of their sin. They don't want to be told that your sin is so desperately wicked that God the Son must come down out of heaven and die for the payment for your trespasses. Then we have a turn. And we're going to look at this in some depth. Naaman has a turn after reproof. Look at verse 13 and 14. And I want to say this before I even dive into this final section of the text that we'll look at tonight. So often you're thinking, I, I, I need to speak to this person. They're taking offense so easily. They're not getting it so often. I, I need to speak to them, but what good would a little reproof for me? They'll just, take, they'll just get more offended. I want to give you hope tonight at the power of a simple reproof. Look at verse 13 and 14. As Naaman storms away, he's headed back to Syria. And as they ride back, a group of his servants get together and they devise a plan. And here's their plan. Let's talk some sense into Naaman. Their speech, if you look at verse 13, look at it carefully. Their speech is a classic argument from the greater to the lesser. And so they ask, would you do something, Naaman, spectacular and expensive to be healed? Of course you would. You were ready to do so. So why not do something humble and free to be healed? What the prophet Naaman has ordered is simple and safe, not dangerous and unreasonable. And Naaman does something astounding. Humbly confronted by servants, he submits to their reproof. And he turns and he rides back to the river Jordan, heeds the word of the prophet, and he's healed. Now, last week we saw that the hero was the little girl. Do you know who the heroes in our text are tonight? It's unnamed servants. Last week, it was an unnamed servant girl. Now it's unnamed servants again. And they're the heroes because they are courageous enough to give a reproof. I want you to think with me in some depth about this issue of the reproof, and the issue of receiving a reproof from a wise counselor. By the way, the, if you're that person sitting here tonight and saying, "I don't need to be reproved, I am my own counselor. The scriptures are absolutely scathing in their denunciation of self-counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. That's why the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. God re. Repeatedly commands you to receive counsel, to listen. For example, in Proverbs 1, we're told a wise man will hear and increase in learning, a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. Why should you seek counsel? Well, God commends it. In Proverbs 20, verse 18, we're told, plans are established by counsel. Why should you seek counsel? Because you'll grow wise. In Proverbs 19, we're told, listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your latter days. Why should you seek counsel? Your plans will succeed. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 15, without counsel, plans go astray. But in the multitude of counselors, they're established. In other words, God loads his counsel with incentives. Why do many refuse to seek counsel? Well, the person who refuses to seek and then heed counsel has a profound yet simple deep-rooted problem. Pride. By not seeking wisdom or counsel, they're saying, I have within myself all the wisdom any man would ever need. They also refuse to seek counsel because they're independent. They don't understand the function of the body. They don't understand one another. And the man who refuses to seek counsel thinks that all of these people sitting around him right now with all this experience and gifts and wisdom really are to have no role in his life. Instead of understanding, no, God has given you all of these people in this room tonight, gifted, wise women and wise men, to build you up in maturity, you need these people. The only being not needing counsel is the omniscient God. Now, let me stop and make several applications. This ought to make God more glorious in your eyes because He is the only self sufficient one not needing counsel. Let me ask you by way of application When, if ever, was the last time you went to a believer and said, I need your wisdom? I'm not omniscient. Can you help me in this area of parenting or marriage or business ethics? And then you actually heeded their counsel? Another application. God has so ordered the normal Christian life that we are to be dependent on one another. We need each other's counsel. If you fail to seek out and heed wise counsel, you've misunderstood the nature, the corporate nature of the Christian life. And let me tell you the type of counsel you'll specifically struggle to hear. Reproof. Reproof, by the way, is the most frequently referred to form of counsel in Scripture. The word for reproof means a blow, a severe stroke which shakes one so hard it causes him to tremble. It's a word used for a hammer blow on an anvil, inflicting pain. And even if the, the nail of reproof is dipped in kindness, it still has a sharp point and it hurts. A reproof is an admonition which seeks to lovingly correct a sin or a fault in another, but also inevitably inflicts pain on the recipient. That's what these servants gave to Naaman, a reproof. Now let me tell you how a fool receives a reproof. An unwise man always despises correction. Proverbs 12 says, He who hates correction is stupid. And then Proverbs goes on to say, A fool hates his reprover. I'll just warn you, if you tonight are emboldened and say, I I think I could do some good for this person. I think I, I know what scripture teaches. I'm going to go to them. If they are a fool, let me tell you what's going to happen. They will hate you. Proverbs chapter 9 says, He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. He who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer or he will hate you, but reprove a wise man and he will love you. You know this person. You gently speak the truth in love and they turn on you. That's why Jesus talked about such people in Matthew 7 and said, Don't give what's holy to the dogs or cast pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. The fool, again, according to Proverbs, will not listen or receive rebuke. Therefore, the fool will be destroyed. We're told in Proverbs 29, he who is often reproved and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. God is just. He's given fair warning via teachers and Preachers and parents and friends. How does a wise man receive a reproof? I will tell you, this is one of the many reasons why biblical scholars have said, and there are so many more clues tucked into our text here, that we see a converted man. That the the washing in the River Jordan is not just a literal washing, but we see Naaman being cleansed. How does a wise man receive a reproof? A wise man receives a reproof, and he knows these are God's way of direction. They're a fundamental means of sanctification. Proverbs 6.23 says, reproofs and instruction are the way of life. The wise man knows that God will not ride across the sky. Your grumbling and complaining is a denial of your confession of God's sovereignty. But he will use means. He'll use friends, parents, sometimes even a preacher. How does a wise man receive a rebuke? He loves his reprover. Again, Proverbs 9. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself, but rebuke a wise man and he will love you. You see, a a godly man knows that this person has come and reproved him as a faithful, true, loving friend. Proverbs 28 says, He who reproves a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. Who's the friend who will be a blessing to you? Is it one that will wink at your sins and ignore your oddities? You and I sin daily in word and thought and deed. The true friend is the one who will come to you gently, lovingly, honestly, and reprove you. Not a flatterer who will flatter you in your sins. Friendship can hardly be called Christian without this element. The love that dares not risk a faithful wound and skips reproof rather than inflict pain is judged by God's standard as hatred. But the wise man, and we see that in the life of Naaman, the wise man heeds the reproof and changes his course. The wise man doesn't need wheedling or manipulation, just a fitly spoken earnest rebuke will suffice look back at the reproof from his servants look carefully at verse 13 and 14 in verse 13 and 14 his servants again this isn't somebody on his his military staff this isn't the secretary of state these are servants how humbling is this to have those who are your inferiors come and reprove you but notice what naaman does As soon as he's reproved, in verse 14, he turns around, goes back to the River Jordan, and obeys the man of God. Well, what about you? How do you receive a rebuke and a reproof? Well, the first rebuke and reproof that any sinner ever actually receives is the gospel. The gospel, you see, is a rebuke and counsel we don't want to hear. It tells men that they're sinners and desperately wicked and that they must repent and turn. But afterwards, when you hear the reproof and act on it, it's life-giving. Naaman is cleansed. Look at verse 14 and notice the span between it and verse 10. The promise was made on Elisha's porch. If you'll do this, you'll be cleansed. And as soon as he obeys the conditions, washed seven times in the River Jordan, he's cleansed. Of course he was. God never made a promise that he didn't keep. And just like the Lord miraculously cleansed Naaman, so does the Lord, when you repent and believe, cleanse you from all sin. And I still want you to not forget who the heroes are so far. We're halfway into Second Kings chapter 5. Notice who the heroes of the text are. An, named, an unnamed girl who tells of where Naaman can find cleansing, and unnamed servants who humbly reason with Naaman. Notice how humble they are in verse 13. They don't come to him cocky. They don't come to him with a sharp tongue. They come to him calling him father. And what we are meant to see is God delights to use nobodies in his service. People who want no recognition, only the glory of God. And so let me point out just a few final applications. I want you to point out, I want you to see that Naaman must plunge seven times into the Jordan because God said so. I can't tell you how many times when I've taught this text before, especially to students. Carl, why? Why seven times? Why not 15 or four? Naaman must plunge seven times into the Jordan because God said so through his prophet. Adam and Eve must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God said so. Sinners must come repenting and believing in Jesus Christ alone for salvation because God said so. Naaman, and you and I, must learn there is only one way of pleasing God and that is doing what he commands. Let me ask you, and the question of the text what would have happened if Naaman would have only washed six times in the Jordan? He would have still been consumed by leprosy. What would happen to you tonight if you only believed in Christ but did not repent? You'd still be consumed by your own moral filth. You would still be outside the kingdom. Let me point out, too, one of the things that's it's almost comedic in this text. You don't see it because you have a hard time cleaning that mirror. But human pride is always ridiculous. Here's a man who's consumed with a flesh-eating disease, whose face is rotting off, whose hands and feet are turned into stumps, and he's proud? What a picture of you and I. What do you and I have to boast in? Your pride, my pride, is just as laughable as Naaman's was. It's always fascinating. We can see Naaman's pride crystal clear. Oh, what is, why is he proud? Oh, oh, you mean I'm the same way? Finally, I would point out Naaman's pride, and this is one of the many reasons why we would assert that he was converted. Naaman's pride had to be removed. Remember he had pride of place. I'm a Syrian. He had pride of position. I'm the commander in chief of the army. He had pride of wealth. Look in the back of my chariot. And see all the gold and silver I have. God hates pride. And he will knock it down. Every time. This is why James teaches us. God is opposed. To the proud. Because grace. Because grace. To the humble. Let's pray together. Our Father, by this word, we ask that you would teach us humility, that we would understand the nature of cleansing that you provide through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, through this text, even as we walk through this text over the next few weeks, Lord, we ask that you would lower us more and more, that we might look to Christ and he would receive all our glory and adoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.